0: And welcome to our special on the Bolshevik Revolution. It is the 105th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. And that's what we're talking about tonight. So, Chris, good evening. How are you doing, mate? You good?
1: I'm very good, Rich. How are you?
0: Great. Wonderful. I'm doing very well. Yeah, so Bolshevik Revolution. I mean, obviously, now we're talking about the bread and butter, the, 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 the sacred moment, the, the big <laughs> stuff um, as communists, as Marxist-Leninists. Um, this is the thing, you know, the, the Bolshevik revolution, 1917 and Lenin and everyone, um, all that stuff, all that history. Um, so this is a pretty, <laughs> we're going for the sacred texts, so here to speak, we are. Uh, in this in this case here. Christmas so, and World
1: Cup all mixed into one.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Where would you like to begin, mate?
1: So obviously this is a massive subject, isn't it? Because obviously you think of it as just one event and mm it shaped so much of the world. Now, to, just to jump off, I just want to get into uh, a pet peeve that I saw this morning and annoyed me to no end, more than it should have done. From a group promoting Marxist study, they were doing their own celebration of the October Revolution, and they called it the November Revolution. Now, obviously, today oh. is 7th of November. So just to clear up to anyone who's just starting up with no uh, pre-existing knowledge on the subject, obviously, the russians were using a different calendar than we was this event today would have marked the i believe it the the months with the the dates would have been the same so it would have been on the 9th of october wouldn't it
0: Mm, no i think it would have been the end of october still um i think i was still checking uh i think it was the 27th of october if i'm not mistaken there you go Sorry.
1: yeah so because they were using the Julian calendar and we we're using the Georgian or vice versa. Yes. We we're using separate calendars. But please do not call it the November November revolution. If you do that, I'm going to assume you're talking about the german Bavarian revolution. These are different events. Nice.
0: <laughs> right, 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 right. Yes. Uh, I'm going to get that data for you. So, yes, November 7th is obviously today and when it happened for us. Uh, it, on for the... One second. Gosh, i read through it. It's a long text here. 20, where is it? 25th. Uh, oh, gosh, I've, to, I've managed to find the longest article, which doesn't give me a answer. <laughs> mm, uh, but yes, I'll give you an answer in a moment. But yes, yeah, different different of different gates. That's the point, right? That's the
1: point. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the 25th of October.
0: Is so if you got it there? Is it 25th, was it? Yes. Okay, so 25th of October, it's so not 27th. So yes, 25th of October on the Julian calendar, which is what the Tsarist Russians were still using. And then uh, obviously 7th of November for us on the Gregorian calendar. Yes. Yeah, so yes, yeah, that's true. important point to make, yeah. Yes, great October. A bit confusing for people. Yes, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> as is
1: everything oh, that we do.
0: Yeah. But I think you make um, a very good point there about how it affects everything. So. Why are we celebrating something that happened 105 years ago? Why is that important? As you said, that is a very big, long discussion. I guess that's what they're going to be talking about tonight. But it still does have a huge impact and influence ideologically, politically around the world. The most obvious one being China. Um, In that speech that Xi Jinping gave at the opening and closing of the 20th Congress of the CPC, He mentioned Marxism, Leninism, and Marxism. And um, they have a hammer and sickle, um, a huge hammer and sickle, which is the symbol of the Bolshevik Revolution. That symbol was designed by Lenin. Um, The hammer representing the workers and the sickle representing the peasants. So there it is, you know, any country that has a communist party, whether it's in power or not, that has a hammer and sickle, that calls itself a Marxist-Leninist party, um, that, you know, like I said, whether it's in government or not, um, you have governments in China, in Vietnam, in Laos, in Cuba, um, and also then sharing power in other countries such as South Africa and other places around the world all have that symbol and that ideology. obviously there's differences as to the implementation of of that in modern times, you know, know, that thing hasn't stood still. There are, you know, this revisionism and sort of applications of Chinese and socialism, socialistic characteristics, sorry. Um, But, yeah, the point is, is that it's still extremely important. It's still a very important event um, and crafts uh, many of the political uh, things going on right now in the world, Um, many parties in many places. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. So, I I guess we should should
0: go. Go ahead.
1: In our media, um, there's a, there's a, a phrase that's constantly used where we're constantly reminded the phrase communism is dead. And it is repeated through so many mediums and narratives mainstream news will say it not just your average right-wing college professor there are there are some out there most of them quite left-wing but it's repeated to us through so many avenues as if it's a mantra that they're trying to hammer into our head now bonapartism is dead we all agree that it's dead they don't need to remind us every day that napoleon's ideas are dead but they do feel the need with communism and with the ideas of this the, with these two two men coming on two hundred something years ago now, and,
2: <laughs>
1: and how their ideas still affect the world to this day in a huge point as you just pointed out with China being then um, successor to the communist international communist movement, which is now, I believe, this year overtaken. And the United States is the biggest economy in the world. This is these are feats that the Soviet Union never achieved. <laughs> Obviously, a yeah. lot does sort of look at. Uh, mirror the the days of sort of classic marxist leninism of of the last cent- century and we are going to uh, discuss a bit of that such as the aesthetic everyone knows what a communist soldier looks like the all the the big hats uh the green uniform mm. with the the red tassels and on, on the collar there's an aesthetic to it which obviously we, we are mm. going to get into and why the soviet union through necessity adopted this sort of militaristic look and approach to foreign policy and how that was sort of brought into existence and in many ways sort of essential to its survival as as Mao once said without people's army the people have nothing almost to the point that Mm -hmm. there's no point achieving your gains if you're not willing to defend them Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. obviously we'll get into that a little bit more in a sort of more chronological order so where where do you want to sort of um
0: yeah I think I think it's important then just to sort of give a bit of the uh, pre-history, so before you get into the actual revolution itself. So, I mean, we can't, again, you have to draw a line somewhere and to try and explain everything would be unwieldy. We wouldn't be able to finish that. So as a recap, the conditions that led to the Bolshevik revolution, as Marxists will say, the conditions are extremely important. The material conditions, the material and social conditions for revolution are extremely important. Theory and a vanguard movement are very important, but so are the material conditions. So, obviously, World War One breaks out uh, in 1914, and all of the imperial powers are aligned in different groupings. So you have Britain, France, um, Italy, uh, and Russia uh, aligned against the Central Powers, um, Germany and Austria-Hungary, and, and then later the Ottomans and the Japanese on the other side of the world with with the Allies, um, and War breaks out, and, and and of course this is the First World War. It's you know industrial scale, um, the first real industrial truly industrialized war with um, industry fully dedicated in in that particular way, and all sorts of new machinery. And so whole scale slaughter is taking place in, in in that war across the world. Um, and who gets sent, of course, is the working class. They are sent to to slaughter each other by the various nations. Um, and particularly for Russia, the losses and the incompetence of the Tsarist regime means they lose, you know, millions of, of men and, 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 and wounded and whatnot, and the country is, is, is really decimated. And uh, food shortages and economic strife, um, you know, increase, increase, increase. Their life is extremely difficult. So by the time you get to sort of uh, February of 1917, um, there's bread lines. There's women uh, are begging for bread for food. Um, there's orphans. There's, it's absolute chaos, and there's also mutiny. Mutinies by soldiers, Russian soldiers mutinying is happening. They're either just running back into Russia somewhere, or you know, um, killing their commanders, killing their officers, or whatever. So it's falling apart. That's the conditions that you have. This absolute, um, you know, real class uh, antagonism with the aristocracy yeah. and uh, telling them to continue the fight, to continue to go and die for Russia, for the for the empire, for the Tsar. And these people being put into this grinder. And bear in mm-hmm. mind, that's all across Europe. That grinder.
1: And that's um, it. And I think it's interesting that sort of that the um, the lies of the old world stopped working. Like that this, mm. this these romantic I, notions of dying for your monarch, and king, and uh, country. And like I, I, you've probably seen this. Back in school, maybe if you went to an art museum, the old artwork from the Crimean War from the last century of these romantic images of cavalry riding with their sword. And when you see mm-hmm. those images at the beginning of World War One of all these young chaps lining up to with their hats, telling over off to war, the, the enthusiasm yeah. that they went with, because they had all they knew of war was these pieces of romantic art from centuries gone, from wars yeah. where you were led by gentlemen with white pants. And the whitest of mm-hmm. gloves and you lay stood in a line firing decorative rifles that are engraved muskets and it was all mm-hmm. so gentlemanly and yes. then when you're fighting a war with modern light machine guns and mustard gas and flame flowers getting yeah. horrible the worst diseases and it's all there on newspaper being beamed at home people were been shooting yeah. themselves in the foot because they can't take it anymore, shell shock yeah. real yeah. horrors of war that had just never been technologically able to be inflicted on people before and I think yeah. these are the yeah. things that really got into their mind and the, the notion of fighting for your for the glory of him and his royal family, it just seems completely alien at this point where class unity in the trenches is such an easy thing to build I believe the, the one that you're with is that these are these are the people that you relate to. These are the people that matter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Those mm-hmm. white pants back home, that they don't have a clue. They're going to be the ones coming out at the end of it with the medals and the glory. And I think these this is the first time where this has all been brought to, brought to the forefront.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to add to that. If anyone does want to go and see the uh, or get an idea. Of the horror of, of, of World War One. I. I mean, all war is terrible, all war is horrible, but there was something particularly brutal about trench warfare in, in the early 20th century. So go to the Imperial War Museum and you can see some of the things yep. that they had, particularly just stuff that you would never really think about. So soldiers had to make their own weapons, so hand to hand weapons. And you can see these clubs and things with the nails and hammers that they used to then use. So once they got close and shoot each other, they would just be clubbing each other to death and stabbing each other really brutal and they're they're, those are the real weapons they're there and then um the other thing to add to that is also then this series uh, that's this film that just came out all quiet on the western front which netflix has recently released also shows you again just the the chaos of of the end of the war as well and you you catch a glimpse of the class politics too um you have that arrogant german uh, commander who's demanding that this be a last assault Sorry, a bit of a spoiler alert. you haven't seen. <laughs> <And there's laughs> spoiler, wo- spoiler for World War One. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. The Germans <laughs> lose. <The> Germans
1: lose. <laughs> right. No, i mean the
0: series. Yeah. <laughs> no, and then, uh, and then, um, uh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. So, um, uh, yes. So that, I'll, I'll come back to that one. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. Really, truly horrific stuff. Um, yeah, in that sense.
1: So I think yeah, when you look at these sort of things and the conditions that people were going through you can understand start to understand the mindset of a lot of it what is could be described as at this point the international working class these are people, soldiers from multiple countries all come into a common ground to have to fight each other for a war they don't understand now at this point mm. in the soviet in in tsarist russia the bolshevik party were actually organizing men to actually spend time basically on the front lines to teach people class politics and to antagonize against the ruling class that are sending them to war mm. which i thought was a very interesting thing that, that they did this and obviously it's difficult to sort of gauge the uh, success of this but obviously sort of bolshevik ideas did come back to a lot of countries after world war one uh, throughout throughout right. europe this is one of the times we've been the closest, especially in, in an imperialist country like Britain, to having that sort of mass socialist movement.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 another excellent point. Is that that war and then the revolutionary ideas that were uh, sort of accelerated because of that war, um, as much as you did have a Bolshevik revolution in Russia and Russia then pulls out of World War One and. Uh, and it, the war itself, the, as we know, it, is continues for another year. Um, the Germans have a revolution. There's a yes. revolution in Germany, very similar to the Bolshevik Revolution, not identical, but you had sailors who were about to be sent to a big final battle. Um, the German Imperial fleet was adamant that they want to have this big battle, even though the war was about to end. Um, the German sailors figure out what's happening. They refuse to do it. There's mutinies all over the place. Those sailors then head off into um, different towns of Germany and ferment revolution in Germany. And you had a, a German revolution with Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebling and, and whatnot. It didn't, you know, it, you did have a, a Bavarian Soviet Republic and all sorts of Soviet republics, very much in a similar fashion to the, the Bolshevik ones, pop up in Germany. Uh, and that ended the, you know, the Tsar and, and that, that um, aristocratic
1: system. But what's also, you had one in, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what's interesting. it very much in, in that respect, also ended the First World War. Uh, when people talk about the end of the war, everyone's always very hazy and foggy. At the beginning of the war, they're always so certain it starts with Franz and being shot. Even that, huge <laughs> levels of missing information. But when it comes to, to talk about how World War II ended, they will say, oh, it ended with an armistice. Well, an armistice, by its definition, isn't an end. It's it's the pause yes. while you negotiate an end. It's a peace, yeah. tree. It's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a ceasefire the real yeah. crux of why World War One ended was because they realised that they just accidentally invented communism on the battlefield. Yeah. <laughs> Russia to have yes. a revolution, Germany's having a revolution, we need to stop it. And yeah. this, I'm just going to, this is obviously why after the peace treaty where we dash it out, you have now the, what's classed as the Allied intervention in the Soviet Civil War, where the British, right. the right. Americans, the Japanese, the Germans who had just been defeated, got rearmed by the allies to attack the Soviet Union. And this, I'm just gonna just sort of just dump this information bump up here. This is why the Soviets realized that they're never going to get a moment's peace to peacefully develop and that they are going to need to basically defend themselves from the capitalist world. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm just putting this one up here for us to look at, yeah, you can see it there. As Chris just said, the Bolshevik Revolution happens in the October slash November, and they start, you know, mobilizing workers' deputies, soldiers' deputies, and pe- workers in different cities, particularly Petrograd and uh, Moscow. But as you just said, very quickly, the West, as you said Britain, France, uh, Japan, America, Germany, Czechoslovakia, also, and the Ottomans, all advance and try and take over. Um, parts of Russia and support the white army. So the Red Army being the Bolsheviks, the whites being the pro, uh, pro-Tsar, pro, pro-aristocracy, pro pro sort of previous system, uh, yeah. Tsarist Russia, basically. Yeah. Um, all, they all get support from um, the West and uh, not just in sort of support with weapons and, and funding, but troops, um, troops, British troops, French troops, American troops, Japanese troops, land in Russia and fight in Russia. And if you look at this map here, you can see, obviously, in the south, you've got British forces there, and um, French and British and American in the north. Um, that's now, if you're Murmansk and Arch- Archangel, that's that's where the, you know, the North Sea fleet is. This is, you know, this is the heart of Russia. And, and if you look at this, there's, you know, the amount of territory, that the, 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 the very little territory that the Bolsheviks actually had at the start um, is, you know, it's, it's quite plain to see. And there's another map I'll show you here, which is um, shows you the rest of the country. So this one is a slightly different timeline. So the Soviets have taken some of some more territory on this map. But uh, look at the the whole country. So you've got this uh, whole eastern strip here, which is broken up into all sorts of pro-white um, factions, as well as some uh, nationalist sort of of, of of an ethnic minority, perhaps. But then you have this thing called the Czech Slovak, Czechoslovak legion. So that legion was on the Trans-Siberian railway. So you really had such a little piece of territory that the Soviet uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks started from. Um, And bear in mind, a lot of the people, most of the population is is in this area. But still, they fought, once they'd taken power, they fought and took back all of this and Ukraine and the stuff that's on the previous map here, and then pushed west uh, towards what they lost at the treaty of brest litovsk um to, to the germans um so the, the point i want to make here is actually uh there's sort of three accounts of the bolshevik revolution there's the sort of um, trotskyist revisionist one that it was you know the, the revolution portrayed and all that kind of stuff then you have the totalitarian western one that you know that they plundered and robbed and uh, it was all just terrible and then you have the sort of soviet marxist uh, one right and the Western view is that, you know, this was a completely um, undemocratic, totalitarian, um, they just came in through violence and sheer sort of thuggery. Um, and that was how they managed to to beat and win. Um, but it seems impossible that you could just have, basically what some, some Bolshevik thugs managed to beat the combined armies of the West, as well as the whites and take all of that territory without the support of the, of the Russian people, without the support yeah. of the, the people they were, with. It's, it's insane. It's absolutely utterly insane. They obviously had mass support from the peasants and workers, um, from the original place that they started. And then as soon as they entered new places would have had support. And it's obvious why they had support. I mean, they were, they were offering to give land to the peasants um peace spread land all that kind of stuff yeah so yeah that's an important point i think that needed to be made in regard to um countering the sort of current um dominant view of of how the Bolshevik revolution unfolded i mean obviously there was violence and there was thuggery it was it's no tea party as they always say but yeah. um the idea that it wasn't popular is, is utterly ridiculous
1: exactly like you've got to remember that the conditions that the, the people in Russia were in at that point, like serfdom had not been fully abolished at that point so serfdom you know, doesn't quite realise it's it's not quite slavery, uh, it's not quite feudalism. It, it's slavery with an extra step basically you, the landlord doesn't own you he does own the land and the equipment and your house so it's it's essentially in terms of the feel of it, you wouldn't be able to feel very much different than then slavery, uh, but there's a few legal caveats that make it technically not. So just to go back onto that picture, so this is a photo from uh, I'm going to... Yes, so this is uh, Russian Far East. Um, If anyone can think in your head where North Korea is, this would be the section that North Korea shares a border with Russia. So Mm -hmm. here obviously we've got a Part of the Allied intervention. You can see uh United States flag. This I was trying to work this out. French, maybe, Romanian, maybe hard to tell with a black and white photo. Could French, be French, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, Empire of the Rising Sun and the Far Back. Um, yeah, uh sides that are eventually going to start shooting at each other in about 20 years' time.
0: Yes, yes, um, yeah,
1: exactly. All coming together to try and kill the Early socialist state in its crib, effectively.
0: Yeah, I think actually you just mentioned that point there about killing the Bolshevik uh, revolution in its crib. Um, Churchill, Winston Churchill, was a very big advocate of this. So as we've already said, it, it can be easily argued that the end of World War One happens not because of the powers that be. I mean, obviously they were spent, and they were you know milit- militarily there was. they were nearing a conclusion, but it's the revolutionary stuff that really propels them to come to some sort of conclusion. So the Baltic Revolution happens, as well as the German one. And then you also have the Austro-Hungarian Revolution, as well as something happens in Italy, I'm I'm rusty on that. But also in Ireland too, you have all sorts of uprisings, and many of them draw inspiration from from the Soviet Union, particularly the German and, and the ones in Eastern Europe. So yeah, you have Soviet Republics pop up everywhere, not just in what would become the Soviet Union. But yes, there's a particular thing you have to mention or to, 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 to know about um, Churchill is that he, obviously, he is important, he has a very important government role at the time, and plays an important role at the Versailles Treaty, too. And he is hell bent on strangling um, Bolshevik, you know, um, as Bolshevik state coming into existence. Uh, and there's an interesting thing here, I'll, I'll share it here, uh, some of his comments. Um, but he quite openly, you know, sees it as the, the creeds of the devil, Churchill between between the two totalitarianisms. Okay. Um, and in this thing here, uh, there's, a, there's a little quote that I'm going to find uh, about the fact that if Hitler invade sorry, if Hitler invaded hell, um, he would at least try and sort of cast the devil in a good light or something like that. Showing yeah. that... <laughs> that He really did not care for the Soviet Union, even back, even then, at that point when he when he was having to face, um, face you know fascism. Um, yeah. yeah, find it here. Sorry, one second. But yeah, what are your thoughts on this, Chris? Anything to add to this?
1: So obviously, with with Churchill and a lot of the other sort of uh, conservative aristocracy in Britain at the time, hmm. a lot of them, when especially when Mussolini's fascism uh, emerged, hmm. a lot of them were obviously big of it because they correctly identified it as uh, a reactionary capitalism they saw it as a way mm. to uh, preserve the old system in a in a sort of military first structure a lot of them saw fascism as um doing right by our veterans who would come back by giving them mm. it was a, mm. it was a military movement wasn't it mm. um mm-hmm. early fascism yeah. and obviously for its anti-capitalist ways we said this in the last mm. episode where about um, Lula, how a lot of the left has been able to perceive as being the godless communists versus the the right wing have been left to be the sort of protectors of the church and private property. And this is sort of a lot of where these ideas sort of came from, where it was only Mm -hmm. right until the end of the West sort of love affair with Hitlerite fascism when World War II started, where they sort of, Ideologically, sort of severed themselves from it in that sense. Uh, there was still very much two in the line of, yeah, Hitler's bad, but fascism still useful for us.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. There's also a particular thing that I'd read into which I, I'd not really drawn that line before, and and I'd heard people talk about this thing of fascism was the response of capitalism um, to the rise of uh, worker power of, of communism or socialism, um, and. There's actually a very clear link where you look at things like in the German revolution. So once Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht and those guys do what they do in, in Germany, the relationship with the old aristocracy, the, the the sort of falling apart Kaiser sort of system, the, the bureaucrats and whatnot, um, and the general, so there's a particular general, and he organizes the, the free corps, the freikorps, and there's yep. a picture of these guys and they've got swastikas on the helmet. They're very basic swastikas, but they're yep. they're there. And you can see the the, the militaristic sort of
1: Sort
0: of in its yeah,
1: role. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they're the ones that crush, um, you know, the, the, the German Revolution. Um, yeah. Mm. Uh, sorry, I just want to put up this thing. I've got it up here already, uh, which is so Lloyd George, who's the prime minister at the time, yep. coming back to this Churchill yep. point, uh, Lloyd George, the prime minister, famously added a more personal consideration. So he's talking about Churchill, he says, his. Ducal blood revolted against the wholesale elimination of Grand Dukes in Russia. In his diary, Sir George Riddle noted that Lloyd George had commented upon Churchill's Connaught Room speech in no uncertain terms. He, Churchill, has Bolshevism on the brain. He is mad for operations in Russia. A few weeks earlier on, September uh, 17th, February, using the same word mad, he had personally wired to Churchill to warn him against a purely mad enterprise out of hatred. Of bolshevik principle so just to emphasize yeah churchill was hell-bent on strangling this and was deeply anti-bolshevik and uh was happy to send more of those boys who just died in the trenches of, of world one to go and try and fight uh, on this mad enterprise that even lord george lord george was was, was, saying was mad um but yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry.
1: Go ahead. so it just it just goes to show that in terms of the analysis of what the communists said they were doing is the same conclusion that churchill said well he Agreed. Yes, this is what the communists are saying they're doing. They are just wholesale, wholesale destroying the old ex- exploitative world that Churchill just happened to have a stake in and enjoy, mm. and replacing it mm. with a different one that doesn't give him the same elite status that he does. And it's just a, such a clear using him as as a sort of vertical slice for his class. Yeah, this is. What happened after the October Revolution when we saw this exodus of the bourgeois uh previous mm. ruling class in Russia going to the West to reorganize, find international friends, get support for uh, its White Army and its, uh, in a lot of states, proto-fascist <laughs> movements, and leaders, and yes. like you, you, it wouldn't be. You wouldn't be hard to press, even, even in Nazi Germany, where you would see uh, German officers with in their houses with portraits of, obviously, your, your Nazi leaders and then your old-school Russian leaders, like uh, Frederick, but then also had portraits of Tsar Nicholas on the wall, because they saw it as this sort of continuation of Nazism and fascism being there to protect the old world from the rebellious working class. Um, yeah. Because obviously this was sort of you new. Know, there's a reason why we talk about uh, Leninism as something in ha- different in that sense from just Marxism. Leninism is Marxism in the age of imperialism, which, in in a sense, we're talking about the events that we've just started on from World War One. Marx didn't see this, so it would have been hard for him to to predict it, it would have been hard for anyone to predict it in that sense. You saw military buildups the past 20 years before the war, but the scale and the outcome and the fallout. So this is what the conditions, this is what the state of the world was at a time when Leninism was sort of willed into necessity.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I think you make an excellent point there about the relationship with the czarists, the white Russians, and fascism. And in fact, they don't need to actually do any um, sort of uh, guesswork as to what their opinions were. It's actually quite 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 a known fact. Um, if you ever do go to China, <laughs> um, there's a city in northern China called uh, Harbin. Um, and this city was actually originally, obviously there was a, a small settlement before that, but the city Harbin as it is known today was actually built by the Russians under the Tsar um, for the railway, Chinese and railways was centered there, and the engineers, the Russian engineers, built this town. With um, you know, there's a an Orthodox church there, and everything. And that was a Russian city, a White Russian city during the Russian Imperial days, when they had that sort of control over the sort of uh, fading and collapsing uh, Chinese imperial system. So, when the Bolshevik Revolution happens and the Whites lose, the White Russians lose. They obviously, as you said, spread all over the world to America, <coughs> to all corners of the globe, but. The largest gathering of white Russians was actually in Harbin in Northern China, because it was occupied by the uh, Manchukuo, the Japanese puppet regime at the time. Um, So they gathered there and just held out there for whatever it was, the two decades, more or less um, until the Second World War. And as German fascism and Italian fascism and fascism in general rose in in Europe, um, these guys in Harbin, the white Russians, Set up and had their own uh, union of fascists. They had their own group of fascists, and they had even bizarre things like the the club of fascist little ones, like little kiddie fascist clubs. But they fully went down that path. Um, I mean, obviously it's understandable because you know the, the the Bolsheviks were their enemy, and the fascists were against the Bolsheviks, so I guess a natural enemy in that sense. But they didn't really have any problem with um, you know joining up and becoming uh, becoming part of that sort of fascist empire. Had uh, the Nazis taken uh, World War uh, taken the Soviet Union World War II. Um, I mean, these guys were also experimented on by the Japanese. So the Japanese were had their um, that famous testing camps actually in our yeah. and They used Russians too. But yeah, it's a side. And aside, the point is is that um, the White Russians, the Tsarist Russians, were happy to join up with fascist forces. Um, you know, and had, and this is an interesting point that someone raised in in, in uh, against Churchill's, or is that Churchill said, oh, well." you know, um, this, this, this totalitarian regime. And if things, uh, you know, these, these, these are also our enemy. And, and someone in parliament said, well, you know, had Stalin not been there, uh, we would have lost 39 and 45, um, you know, lost world war II. And it's, it's an interesting point that the fifth column, the right wing, um, elements in the aristocrats, in the, um, the czarist sort of section of, of Russian society would have been happy to join, um, uh, in the same way that Vichy France had people that joined up with the, with the Nazis, and in the same way that Franco uh, and the Spanish also were happy to ally with the fascists. So yeah, it's by no stretch of imagination those purges that later do come uh, and do happen are based on historical facts that there are elements of the nobility, there are elements of the rest aristocracy, and there's elements of the military class that are happy to become fascists. Um, you know, and did become fascists in that period of time. Um, so yeah, yeah to add to your point about the white russians and, and becoming yeah they link to to fascism yeah
1: yeah so it's quite interesting as well because obviously with what you said the perception of the russians by the sort of west of the world especially with amongst germans the russians and slavic nations were considered slave nations uh, so obviously with the soviet's contribution to world war ii after what happened with the intervention in the October Revolution, the Russians realized they needed this military outpost um, to be to be a fortress, basically, to protect themselves. During Stalin's first uh, five-year plan speech, so this is where he famously said, um, our enemies are 50 to 100 years ahead of us. We need to make this up in 10 years. We either do this or they crush us. Of course, that turned out to be incredibly accurate. Uh, within that right. decade, Nazis did attack, and the Soviet Union were gave the num the number one contribution to defeating Hitler's what looked like unstoppable war machine only years beforehand. Uh, I know a lot of us, especially any of our viewers who are Americans and are subject to um, the American education system, um, they believe that ev- Europe was getting battered until they turned up. Of course, really what the Americans did in Europe was in retrospect, quite minimalist. The majority of their play was actually in the specifics theater against the Japanese, which they did do a lot. Um, mm. You can have, We can have an entire episode whether their contributions were necessary, whether the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were necessary tools, whether the Japanese gave up because of that or because of the Soviet invasion of uh, Manchuko. Mm. Mm. Uh, Manchuria. Mm. Sorry. Manchuria. Um,
0: same place
1: (laughs) yes but manchuria was the the name of the soviet puppet state uh, sorry the japanese puppet state that was set up wasn't it yeah Manchukuo. yeah yeah yeah. um so so yeah but those things can be debated what cannot be debated is the fact that the soviet union because of the the system that they built had managed to give the number one contribution to beat in hitler's war machine and that in itself is an achievement of the october revolution because europe and the last century's history would have gone spectacularly differently if that hadn't have happened like it would be incredibly difficult to i myself my my family we were joe's witnesses uh, so i mm. i myself wouldn't have been here straight away uh, we would have been done away with decades ago so it's, mm. it's it's very difficult to realize that that is a turning point of the last century where everything changed for the better
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. One hundred percent. The other thing to add to that is that the revolution occurs and changes the conversation amongst the elites among around the world, and also amongst working class people. That's the idea of 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 a of a of a country that serves their interests, of a state that serves their interests, um, yeah. and of overthrowing these ancient, um, you know, classes. And yeah. You can also say that then World War One and World War Two. There's actually there isn't actually a distinction between the two. I mean, yes, you know, obviously there are moments where you can sort of say there's a bulge here in activity, but but if you t- if you take 1914 as the start of the First World War, but after 1917 with the Baltic Revolution, revolutions then happen all over the world until uh, in a big burst in 1923 yeah. and civil wars and whatnot. But independence movements, I mean, particularly also at that meet, uh, at the Versailles conference, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I'm pretty sure that both Ho Chi Minh and Sun Yat-sen, who Sun Yat-sen being the, the Chinese nationalist leader who, yep. who then tries to get independence, both go to that conference. They, I mean, no, they aren't any in any, any sort of major official capacity. They're just citizens demanding that you know, certain things be given to their countries, independence movements. Both of them go to the, the Versailles conference. And, at that conference the world is carved up the new world order is, is established as well as this intervention in, into the bolshevik state is, is is also pushed um but you have a follow on then the fourth the of may movement in china happens after um the japanese sorry after the the japanese get given um shandong so shandong being that sort of peninsula on the eastern china was owned by the germans as a colonial possession and then when they lost the war Japan was given it, and that gave birth to this May Fourth Movement. Okay, one of the, the the sort of key motivations for that. So you almost see the end of the war, 1917, and then following from that, a whole flurry of events, all related to um, the end of the war as well as the revolution, that continue from from then until until today. Um, you know, the, the Vietnamese continue on their struggle until until 1973. Um, Sorry, seventy-five, and um, so many other countries. They continue on their struggles, and and revolutions and independence movements inspired by this spur of everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. I said um, it's
1: not a coincidence that all these liberation movements and these groups demanding um, self-determination that they carried out their movements and their revolutions spurred on by the words of these Marxist-Leninists. This, Mm. uh, this, there's a Anecdote that I'm gonna to have to paraphrase. You probably actually know this one a bit better. It was about Ho Chi Minh when he was being introduced to the internationals, and someone asked him which international do you support, and he said, "Which is the international that supports the uh, cause of the oppressed nations?" And he said, "Well, that would Lenin's Third International." And he said, "Well, that is the international support."
0: <laughs> no, nice, nice. I don't know this reference, but no, that's it. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we could do a special on that at some point. I actually don't know enough about the the distinctions between um the different internationals obviously first, second, third, and fourth. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're on we're on some I don't know now, seventeen or something.
1: <laughs> or something about UFOs waiting to come and Poseidonists and yeah, it yes. all gets a bit crazy when you get to
0: <laughs> uh, after three. I think our three was yeah, three yeah. Was the <laughs> it's like Star Wars, three and it's done. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like Star Wars, basically. Yeah. After
1: three, it <laughs> starts going downhill. <laughs> um, just yeah. bow, uh, with that sort of notion of thought, obviously before the French Revolution in the 1700s, uh, you had the Renaissance. And part of this is not just the technology side of it, but the Renaissance of thought, this rebirth of thought. And this is where you get the first notions of these thinkers coming up with the idea that the state should be there for your benefit and obviously mm. those ideas got taken into the French revolution which was an incredibly progressive revolution for the time this is why france paris was the revolution capital at that point even though it was a bourgeois revolution obviously after the russian revolution moscow now took that title because it it mm. succeeded it but this also caused what this new renaissance of thought of this idea that that spread to third world countries and oppressed countries that we shouldn't have to be at the whims of a more powerful western country we shouldn't have to give our resources whether it be tin rubber people because their god's different their skin's different or more often than not because they've got bigger weapons than us and mm-hmm. even though the west after a certain point of the last century started touting these popular lines of uh independence it meant something very different to them so you've got acts of aggression by britain straight away after world war ii like the uh, malaya emergency which is famously called an emergency not a war so the tin uh, the rubber companies wouldn't lose out on the insurance money where they literally collected heads of trade unionists and communists something similar to what you'd see isis doing with shia we we did it first and it's just amazing how this renaissance fought and it still goes today even countries that are still fighting for their independence today even though no one in the government would even class themselves as communist or a marxist it's these lingering parts of these ideas that were developed Mm. by the marxists Mm. all that all those years ago that are still Mm. relevant to people today whether it be Mm. in korea or in palestine where these groups still use these same tactics these same mottos and the needs are the same
0: mm, yeah no def- definitely the thing i wanted to add to this was um, there's the national determination element so nations being able to decide for themselves and choose their own course of history and, and develop under their own conditions and without any uh, interference from from a power of any description um there's also the sort of, you know, more day-to-day kind of stuff, too, that, you know, this revolution was also the sort of peak um, of a trend which had started um, with Marx and Engels and other socialists and all sorts of descriptions of trade unionists and worker movements. But things like the eight-hour workday, um, you know, a weekend, <laughs> uh, International Women's Day, abortion rights. Um, all sort, of I mean, healthcare, education, uh, f- uh, all sorts of thing, housing, free housing. You know, this, these things that we talk about now, we still talk about them. Some of them are not quite there yet, but some of them have been established for so long that we have forgotten that they were struggles. So actually, quite interesting. I, I see a lot of them complaining about the eight-hour workday, and I understand why. Obviously, it's still, you know, it's still work. Um, but yeah. <laughs> there's eight <this, laughs> hours more than I'd do. like.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just,
0: yeah, right, right, right. But you have to remember that that eight hour workday, being one of the slogans of the May Day rallies from the 19th century, from the First International, um, those guys won that. Those movements won that. It took them struggles and protests and fights and death um, in many cases to win. Uh, that concession, and back then it's hilarious that the if you read some of the arguments by the the bosses, they were like, "It's not possible. It's not possible that our businesses will collapse if if we if they work for less than ten ten hours." Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, all rubbish. I mean, the same stuff we hear today. It's like, "Oh no, four hour four hour workday can't happen. It's, it's 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 just not possible. It's not possible. the economy will
1: The condition for women in general, like the fact that from day one in the new socialist Russia. Women had universal suffrage, something that women in the Western world were still fighting for. Women in Britain were throwing themselves in front of trains to try and get notice, and when they did get it, it was still only for landowning women. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, just right. Going through some of the things that so if you're a woman in the new Soviet Union, you had free childcare, free nurses, everyone had free he- education, free healthcare, and very cheap housing. Mm-hmm. Half the world. So just a great little example here for the for this picture. So look at the. Mm-hmm. For all intents and purposes, marketing, adverts, it is a form of propaganda. But yes. show her it's a man's world. In the United States, this is what a woman was expected of. Everyone knows that idea of the, the sort of dizzy American housewife in the 50s with a fake smile, drugged out of her head and whatever prescription drugs were, they could slam her to. And just 1950s American sexism, Western sexism. Yeah. We had it as well. And But compare yeah. that to the Soviet Union where it was driving this idea that women can be masters of any industry that men can. Voting, election, part of politics. Some of the best fighters, snipers in World War II in the Soviet Union were women. There's no role that you can say this role was dominated by men in the Soviet Union.
2: Absolutely. And just
1: the fact that this was just imprinted by the state to that degree It'd be unfathomable for my nana to think back in her youth that there were women 600 years in the opposite direction, 600 miles in the opposite direction, being treated completely the opposite of her and and a level of freedom that they just never would have got to experience. Mm, 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 mm.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, also, then there's other things. I mean, obviously, 1950s America. Uh, I think it's Paul. Is it Paul Paul Robes Rob Ro, Robes, Robeson? Robespierre? Yep. Paul Robson. Robeson. Robson. Yeah.
1: So, so if anyone knows the great. song Old Man River, him. He sang that.
0: That guy, yeah. Great, great musician yeah. as well. Yeah. He visited the Soviet Union in the 50s. So Stalin's Russia. Stalin's Soviet Union. Um, and he said he'd never witnessed anything like it. Uh the, the treatment and the the lack of racism and the sort of openness of of the society. He said that he felt like he'd visited you know, his home um, and, and, you know, if you can, again, compare that to Jim Crow America, where you had different water fountains and people had to sit in different sections of the buses and, and all sorts of horrible backwardness. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that was the other, there was so many elements to it, of course, and then, so yeah, if you're about the yeah, letter, so you don't want the what
1: Even in America, when Jesse Owens went over to play for the Olympics in Nazi Germany, uh, all the newspapers and people said, "Oh, did did Hitler shun Jesse Owens?" He himself said, "No, Hitler didn't shun me. My government shunned me when I got back." <laughs> but this comparison that Paul Robeson, when he went to America, when he went to the Soviet Union, said that, oh, for the first time, I feel like a free human being stepping on mm. Soviet soil." Then, when he got back mm. to America, got pulled in front of the uh, American Commission for Un-American Activities <laughs> to explain his behavior. I believe he yes, actually definitely. sang the translation for the soviet national anthem and the chinese national anthem in english um so if you've ever heard those versions they're paul robson's version but it's yes, one of those should... voices that everybody knows him they just don't realize they know him
0: <laughs> yes, yes yeah and maybe we could end we could end we could play that we could play that at the end of the stream if you want the uh um, yeah. the, yeah, the soviet anthem that he sings it's a great yeah. it's a great song great song um perhaps we'll see but yeah I think that, that is a, that is another element of the Bolshevik Revolution, the ideals of respecting um, and letting um, all nations have their space to develop in their natural conditions. Obviously, applying that initially in the former Russian Empire, so allowing Kazakhs to have a Kazakh Republic and um, Turkmen and Tajiks and Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and on, a, on that specific thing that um when people talk about the um situation in Xinjiang now with the the way with the Weygore and all that stuff um the originally actually was Soviet um uh, ethnographers that went there and helped these people I mean they obviously made some mistakes because of you know quite a complicated thing but um in the sense that they allow they, they figured out well okay this is a nation here you guys are people okay well let's try and organize you into some sort of government thing that you can have you know your own authority and and have some autonomy. Um, that whole thing also was, was very important. Even even in the early 20s, when this country had just come out of the Civil War and the First World War, they made this effort to, to allow these tiny countries to break up and have control over resources and have a say over, over how things were gonna be done. Um, that is obviously internally, but then if you go after that in, in terms of the independence movements around the world, the Soviet Union is there every step of the way. Um, whether it's in Africa, South America, or Asia, Vietnam, Angola, um, Cuba, the Soviet Union stands and helps um, nations either overthrow yeah. uh, a classic imperial sort of power like Portugal or Britain or France, uh, or stand up to U.S. imperialism in in, in in Vietnam or or elsewhere around the world. They stood yeah. there and, and you know and provided the arms and sometimes even lives um, to to stop. Them. To stop them and to help help the the oppressed nations um yeah so that's of the
1: fundamental as we said in the show as well because obviously the biggest contradiction of our world is imperialism against the needs of the free people it doesn't mean eventually that communists can end up making as we've said strange bedfellows this is why the soviet mm-hmm. union uh, and communist states in general have supported countries that aren't communists. Uh, sometimes are some sort of flavours of of socialism, whether it be Bathist Iraq, Bathist Syria, uh, but then obviously the Islamic Republic, which is not socialist in any any respect of the world, but it's because of their struggle against imperialism, which is why socialists and and particularly in this case the Soviet Union would have supported them.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not, it's not just this case of being only supportive communists. It's about yeah. that's where determination, letting a country develop according to its own um, conditions. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to mention, <laughs> I don't have time for this, but Trotsky and uh, some sort of different difference there. But I think to be honest, we do have to say that during the actual uh, revolution um, and leading up to it, the Trotsky did play an important role um, in in the army, setting up the Red Army and, and, and fighting and, and being a commander and in playing some role of negotiations. Um, he did. But
1: credit where credit is due, he did join the Bolsheviks very sort of late into the game. He sticked with the uh, Menshevik Party, which which mm-hmm. originally was obviously just one wing of the un- unified uh, Russian Social Democratic Party when they were all effectively one one party with two factions that did split. But he. he mm-hmm. He didn't join the Bolsheviks until late on the game. Um, obviously, credit is due during the actual civil war, he did play a role. Um, yeah, yeah. A, lot, yeah. a lot of the criticism of, of Trotskyism, of course, with, with Trotskyism, the majority of Trotskyists don't actually realize what Trotskyism is. Like, a lot of them just see it as they say I'm Trotskyist, and what they mean is I'm just anti. Salonists sometimes. Um, yeah. I don't like bureaucracy. I don't like some sort of um, authoritarianism that they're, they're referring to. Uh, I always think that this, these are very strange accusations coming from a Trotskyist who, <laughs> like, Trotskyist, but by, by no stretch of the imagination was he some sort of liberal, libertarian, sort of libertarian. Mm. Yeah. But he, he yeah. crushed a few workers' movements in his time, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and yeah, I mean the earlier the the Kronstadt um, uprising and whatnot. But I think for for me, uh, you know, the whole thing about this debate is obviously socialism in one country. This was the the big debate of of that era, and arguably still is actually. You could say that that still is the argument as to it is to how to get socialism. Um, so on one side, yes, you had socialism in one country, which is what. Stalin and and Lenin, I think, also um, advocated that saying that, you know, we start from somewhere and you have revolution here and and then we build from there. But um, this is one of his things was world revolution um, that we had to constantly just wage war. So this is if hopefully someone correct me in the comments here, or maybe you can correct me, Chris, that one of the big criticisms from Lenin to Trotsky was that Trotsky was hellbent, being the military commander, hellbent on pushing, um, when the bolsheviks had made their gains and taken so much territory he was pushing west and wanted to go all the way and roll over poland and into germany and and then just have the european world revolution um yeah uh,
1: that's that was my a big thing as well thing. yeah that the notion of building socialism in one country as as a sort of base because obviously so even socialism in one country did export revolution throughout the world it was just yeah. about building the conditions up internally at home where Trotsky's yep. ideas was that socialism can only be, basically everyone has to stand up at the exact same time, which kind of means, mm. well, what about this guy here in, in the Philippines who's struggling and ready now? You're telling him he's got to wait? Because mm. everybody in Colombia is not organized yet? It just seems mm. incredibly, what's the word I'm looking at? Sort of wishful idealistic thinking. Or- in that, yeah, yeah idealistic. very idealistic. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that also, you know, they, they tried that. I mean, they actually did push into Poland. And of course, now you had an invading army, essentially, oh. um, even though they would represent the workers' interests and whatnot if they had taken power. Whatever. But to the Poles, you have a bunch of Russians, uh, just to use a shorthand. Um, and there's never been a particularly good relationship between Poles and Russians, I don't think, at least uh, historically, maybe a good, maybe a few good moments here and there, but um, particularly World War II. But Uh, You know that it it didn't work. They were defeated. They were crushed. So it was defeated on its own terms. It was never going to be a um, a better point than that. They had the troops. They had you know the momentum. Um, So I I don't think that thing would have worked. And as you said, there's also other other you know various reasons. It it just seems too too idealistic, too unrealistic to think that you can have a revolution all the time, everywhere, and just sort of expect people just to you know join up um, like that. yeah, there's so many things you have to think about when I mean, you're crossing the ocean and logistics of that time as well. Um, yeah, chaotic, chaotic. Um, I, I will make one more, one point, um, one more quick point on this one. Not related to Trotsky, actually, is um, there's something obviously called workerism to think about as well, sort of an obsession with um, that workers can do everything. And obviously, this is a very important part of, um, you know, Bolshevik ideology, Marxist ideology. Um, but there are examples where you know, workers take up the wrong, uh, slogan, the wrong angle, and actually then stand in contradiction to the broader struggle or something like that. So, um, a good example of this is actually in, in South Africa, um, there was the Rand rebellion. So there's a huge, there was a huge mining, gold mining, uh, industry, but it still is, um, in South Africa at the time in 19, in the early 1920s. And because of the Bolshevik revolution, this idea and these slogans were all over the world. Uh, and a group of white miners uh, who were striking had this huge uh, uprising and you know, were armed in the streets, and they got very close to having the, the slogans of, of, of Marxism. They said, works of the world unite for a white South Africa. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so close. <laughs> so, close. <laughs> so close, but so far. <laughs> so, so, so I think that that's an important point to make, um, and this is where I think the Trotskyists, um you know obsession with with worker workerism um you can see yeah. some limitations
1: uh, yeah yeah that's it and that's what's really important i think a lot of people get they see something as a working class movement and instantly think it needs supporting and yeah think people forget that fascism as we've said came out of a working class movement just because right. inherently working class doesn't automatically make it good uh yeah. one of lenin's uh big points of saying that left on its own devices the working class and the trade union movement can only be, the best it can come up with is spontaneity. This is Mm. part of the necessity of a vanguard party with a Mm. scientific socialistic analysis to actually lead it. Mm. And this is what the October revolution did, which no other previous revolution had done because it was the first revolution that was governed by scientific socialism. Mm. Um, So just as when we were saying this, obviously Marx discovered the behavior of the exploiting class and of history is governed by certain infallible laws. And by anal- looking at these laws, using analysis on them, you can figure out the sort of the direction of of development, which is what they did. Mm. Um, obviously, no yeah. revolution before this had done this.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I think this, we haven't mentioned the Paris Commune, but this revolution was built on the lessons of the Paris Commune, which yeah. in 1839, which yes, didn't seize state power in enough of a fashion in order to then break and, and crush the, the bourgeois state. Um, they allowed certain elements to stay in and, and yet yeah, didn't have the, well, yeah, they became the, the lesson, the lesson that Marx and Engels then wrote about yeah. to them, which was then the information that was used by Lenin to apply and to, to, to throw and to have a revolution that they, in, yeah. in the fashion that they did. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: and this is also interesting that a lot of the time people say about oh this, why you why are you a Marxist why are you a communist, it's failed everywhere it's applied, that's always a, a great one because people would have said similar things to Marxists back before the October Revolution using the, the Paris Commune as an example. Mm-hmm. These things when when you, they say they failed, what we do is we look at it, we analyse its successes, and I can. Analyze its failures there, so it can be improved upon the next time. That's always what it is. It's a it's a promise to the, your supporters, but a threat to your enemies. That if you thought, if you if you didn't like the last one, wait until the next we do it next time. Like what? Where it went wrong last time? It's not going to go wrong there. And we said this about with China, where these discussion halls are held in modern day China through every part of society and the government. And a big subject that is studied in China is basically where the Soviet Union went wrong. If you're going to let a revolution use their word fail and not analyze where it went wrong, then it's failed for no reason, it's failed for no purpose. Sorry, you have to learn from it, you have to analyze these things. Know where what you did right, know what you did wrong. I think on our channel, half of what we talk about is criticisms of our own movement and where things went wrong and where things should have been better. And that's that is the sort of healthy thing about Marxism where. How it how it is still alive and well and breathing as it should.
0: Mm, 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 mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, the oh, sorry, one second. me earlier, but I've completely forgotten. But yes, the uh, in terms of the 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 failures. Uh, yes, I mean, but look at look at aristocracies look at capitalist systems i mean how many collapses uh, whether it's 1929 or any of the ones of the 20th century or the recent one in 2008 where oh, an entire oh, this decade, <laughs> this decade uh, it's just this system for some reason capitalism is allowed to yeah. fail periodically and we know it's coming there will be a crash and the system will yep. break on its own terms and then we'll just bail it out and pay for it again Uh, not us, but we we will pay for it, (laughs) not by our choice, (laughs) Um, uh, and and that's that's just fine. Whereas any other sort of alternatives, socialism or communism, whatever, um, if they have failures, that's it. You only get one go, mate, that's it. And uh, that was the point I wanted to make. Again, if you look at even just political leaders, I mean, obviously systems is one thing, but we talked about Lula last week. The man went to jail, the man failed many, lost many elections. And even if you want, you could say Biden. We look at Biden, he failed in the election. So um, failing, uh, or sort of where, a shortcoming of some, some, some sense, even if that happens, um, everyone else in the political space seems to be okay with picking up and just carrying on, obviously changing some stuff. And the same should apply to socialism and Marxism. And yeah. yeah,
1: it's always an interesting one as well, off the back of that, where they talk about the... Um... Groups at the Victims of Communism Memorial and the the death toll of communism, which I believe uh, comes from a black book, the Black Book of Communism. The yes. editors of these book were basically given the pitch before writing it. Said, "Whatever you do, come up with one hundred, hundred mil, uh, hundred million, or hundred billion. Either way, a silly number, but don't matter how you do it, come up to that figure." Um, yes. So, but <laughs> well, we could do the same with their system, much more accurately. Oh, yeah. like, If if you're going to accuse everybody who has ever died in Russia prior to 1991, between 1917 to that day, saying that they're victims of communism. So Hmm. why doesn't it also work with everyone who's died in the West in the last 300 years? Why are they not victims of capitalism? Yeah, absolutely. And even more directly so, we can count all those children who had their arms ripped off by polishing the inside of machinery that the factory owners made them go into and...
0: (laughs) Exactly. No, yeah. So that statistic should, if you make it one about capitalism, should include exactly what you just said. Children dying in mines or in machinery accidents at factories, uh, people crashing because they were yeah. overworked yeah. and whatever. Um, you know, all of the illnesses that come from coal, mining coal <laughs> uh, for yeah. profit, and uh, thousands and thousands of other illnesses and ailments and deaths, millions of deaths. Yeah, every day as well. Modern-based and then unnecessary- slavery. And then unnecessary starvation. So... The fact that you have people freezing to death on the pavements of Britain now, um, yeah. while we have empty homes that are empty because of speculation, because of profit profit seeking. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, um, also, I just want to say on that statistic that is still there, the, the victims of communism statistic, there's two um, contributions to that which are there. One of them is is the um, Nazi soldiers that were killed in World War II are apparent victims of, of communism. And also now all of the people that have died of COVID-19 are victims of communism. <laughs> that on there, too. So to be honest, if you're listening to this, you're probably a, a dead victim of communism. Um, probably. Statistically yeah. speaking. You don't know that.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> also, it. I like the, uh, the curse of Stalin, how he managed to make uh, everyone in Russia was dead, but the population managed to keep steadily going up, which is impressive. To It's almost as good as Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong un been able to kill people who then turn up on TV two days later oh yeah there's definitely a magic going on here that we're just not privy to <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. no no we are we are it's, it's a secret it's a Jewish bullshit <laughs> secret that we keep um you know our, our magic satanic cults that we're in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I, I think I'm, I'm pretty finished for tonight um Chris I want to add any other points?
1: um not really so the do thing I've, I've dug out here is um obviously in preparation for this i was watching uh pretty much every single of our parties so if anyone doesn't realize uh, we've been members of the communist party of great britain marxist leninist um every year our party usually by Harpel bra put out a anniversary video uh, going through a lot of the achievements of the soviet union and the october revolution and there was a quote that he found here. This isn't him. This is a quote by Lenin, but he used it. And I thought it was a very good quote. So I thought I'd use it myself. That Rev- Revolutions are festivals of the oppressed and the exploited. and no time are the masses of people in a position to come forward so actively as to create a new social order at a time of revolution. So I thought that was a really interesting sort of way of looking hmm. at what this is. Um, there's another another sort of. Paraphrase quote by somebody who I'm not going to name the person because I don't want to get my colours pinned sure, to the sure. banner, but as Marxists, we are city builders. <laughs> okay, and I think right. that's something that people always want to point out. Uh, everyone likes to concentrate a lot on the destruction of the 21st century. Um, but there was so much construction, so much innovation, a disproportionate percentage of that was the direct responsibility of the Marxist-Leninist governments. We won the space race, we won the technology race, and with China at the helm, I, I can see a very good next century coming as well.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, do you want me to play the song, Chris, or should we just tell you yes, to listen to
1: it? I think we should. Okay,
0: let's get it up, okay. Excuse this advert.
1: we should leave it there I think so
0: I think, I it's think a nice so. Stop there. good stuff so on a high note. Thank you very much. yes we'll leave it on a high note <laughs> um so thank you very much for watching everyone and we'll catch you next week uh we haven't decided on a topic so it's going to be a surprise so uh we'll see you then thank you very much Chris
1: thank you very much see you all next week
0: yes and happy Bolshevik Revolution Day.